But this morning, I want to help us understand some particular teaching in the Word of God. And what I want to do is quite aggressive in the time that I have available to me. And we will see what we can accomplish. But I'd like to begin in the Old Testament, especially in Deuteronomy 7. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there. There is a particular Old Testament teaching called the ban. And I would like to look at that for just a moment and see what God has to say to us about what he was guiding his people toward when they took the land of Palestine in the Old Testament. And then I'd like to go to the book of Judges and see what happens when God's commands are not followed. It's very important for us to see that. And then as we have time, I'd like to look at the book of 2 John as well when pagan religions begin to move their way towards the body of Christ, what is to be the response? So trying to think through pagan religions, what is God's response toward them when his commands are not followed, what happens? And then when pagan religions begin to press in on the body of Christ, uh, what is to be our response to that? So let me begin as we move our way through it. I've entitled the paper, Pagan Religion, Religious Practices and Heretical Teaching, what is to be our attitude? Gleanings from the Old Testament and the New Testament. The way in which God deals with his people throughout time has some distinctions. In the Old Testament, the Lord sought to create a physical sacred space in which his people were to dwell so that he could create a sanctified space in the tabernacle where the Lord's presence could dwell in their midst. Consequently, the land had to be cleansed for this to happen, and the people had to live separately from the nations. They were to be a light to the nations around them as they lived in light of the Lord's commands, and as a result would be the recipients of the outpouring of His blessings. As long as they were obedient, the Lord would bless them. And as the nation was blessed over and over, then the surrounding nations would see what was going on in their nation, and they would be drawn to the God of their nation. I see this as what evangelism looked like in the Old Testament. However, in the New Testament, the Lord is seeking to create a spiritual sacred space in the body of Christ, in whose individual members the presence of the Lord dwells with the intent that this body should be salt and light. We can see that in Matthew chapter 5, as it lives in the midst of all the nations of the world. Hence, the commands to go into the uttermost part of the world and to preach the gospel. Now in this paper, some important implications will be gleaned from both of these testaments concerning God's perspective on the teaching or practices that are considered outside of His revelation. And this will be accomplished by drawing implications from the Old Testament teaching on what we call the ban, which demonstrates God's attitude toward pagan religions and religious practices of those who occupied the promised land before Israel occupied it. Then further in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Judges, we will draw implications from the account of what happens when pagan religions and religious practices are allowed to infiltrate the community of God's people. And then finally in the New Testament, we will draw implications from 2 John's teaching on how to deal with those who teach falsely but still remain, maintain that they are in the body of Christ. Each of these topics provides us with important considerations 
as we wrestle with missiological practices to reach our world, which is filled, filled with pagan religions. So part one, the teaching in the Old Testament concerning the ban. This is where we're going to be in Deuteronomy 7. What is God's attitude toward pagan religions and religious practices? The Old Testament practice of the ban may seem somewhat foreign to New Testament believers, but there are implications of this practice that are important for us to consider as we look at pagan religious practices that still abound in our world today. Therefore, it's important for us to draw out these implications and then apply them to the contemporary situation of living as the people of God. So what is the ban? What is the definition of the ban? If we were to look at the theological dictionary of the Old Testament, it defines ban as to consecrate something or someone as a permanent and definitive offering for the sanctuary or in war to consecrate a city and its inhabitants to destruction, to carry out this destruction, to totally annihilate a population in war. It's to kill. So the point in war is to annihilate it all. And this practice was found in other ancient Near East civilizations, so it was common practice throughout the world at that time. Now, the Old Testament teaching concerning the ban is important for us. The legislation for this particular teaching on the ban is first found in Deuteronomy chapter 7, and these are the regulations for warfare while the people are out of the land as they think about going in to take the land what are they to do? What is to be their approach to warfare? Now, we also see teaching once they're in the land, how are they to approach war? That's found in Deuteronomy chapter 20, but that's different. Right now, we want to look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 because they're outside of the land, about to take the land. And so in Deuteronomy 7, 2 is where we find the heart of this, and it states, defeat them, then destroy them totally, make no covenant with them, show no mercy to them, this is the command. This command is directed toward the seven nations that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 1. All the Ites, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Okay, seven nations that are greater and stronger than the nation of Israel, generally referred to as the Canaanites in that they are the people who inhabit the land of Canaan. And this legislation that we find here is clearly followed in the book of Joshua. You could find it in chapter 6 with Jericho. You could find it as they move toward the northern campaign, the southern campaign. However, it's important to note in two particular passages, and we'll pick this up in just a moment, in Joshua 13, 13, and also in 16, 10, 16, 10 it hints at the fact that Israel is not completely obedient in what the Lord has commanded here. And these, what I want to call veiled statements, are developed in the book of Judges, and that's going to be part two of this paper. And it shows what happens when this particular command is not followed. It's devastating. Israel never recovers from their lack of obedience. Now, in studying this apparent atrocity of God's people being commanded to destroy all the people of the land, it's important to note that God is the one who is behind all of this warfare. You see that clearly in Joshua 11, verses 18 to 20. This is God moving through the land. He's the one that goes before them. He's the ultimate judge. He's the ultimate executor of judgment. But he's doing so through the instrumentality of Israel's warfare. Now, what is the Old Testament teaching about this? This is one of the issues, as I teach freshman students in a Christian university, that is really difficult for them. 
how are we to understand what is happening? Well, it's important to not just underscore the teaching of this practice here in Deuteronomy 7.2, but also to highlight the reasons behind it. So in order to accomplish this, it's important to back up and see the big picture of the broader story. And so although there are probably other significant factors, at least the following that I want to set forth can be a rationale for this practice for what God is doing. First, it is a form of judgment directed toward the wickedness of the people who occupied the land. In other words, God has patiently endured their abominations, but now he chooses to act out of his holy wrath. We could see in Genesis 15, 16 that in a sense, a good way to translate that is now God will be filled to the full one day and then he's going to act. But right now he's being patient. So it's going to be generations that go by. But finally God is acting. In Genesis 15, 16, which is one of the foundational passages for the promise that Israel will occupy the land, it becomes important to consider that. The Lord's promise to Abraham is that in the fourth generation, the nation is going to return to the land to occupy it as an inheritance. So they're going to have their time in Egypt, then God's going to bring them back. The reason provided in the passage is that the sin of the Amorite is not yet complete. In other words, God's not filled to the full with their abominations. The point is, that God is going to be patient with the sinfulness of these pagan people until he brings judgment. But their sin must be judged um, because God is just. But God's still being merciful in the time of Abraham, and he's waiting for that day. He's going to wait four generations. However, over time, his mercy, this patiently waiting for them to turn from their sin, is continually despised through the multiplication of abominations. And as a result, his wrath will be carried out. In Leviticus 18, 24 and 25, it provides an explanation for the destruction of the Canaanites as, and this is what the verse says, do not defile yourselves by any of these things. This is God talking to the Israelites. Don't you do these things. For by all of these things that I'm talking about, these nations which I'm casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought punishment upon it so the land has spewed out its inhabitants. In other words, God is cleansing. God uses Israel's taking over the land, which had already been promised to them, as his means of providing judgment to the abominable inhabitants who have not yet responded to his mercy, his being patient with them. Now, it's important to note that later on, Israel is also warned, if you do these things, I'll spew you out of the land too. And what eventually happens? Israel, because they become involved in these practices, they are actually, they have to go into exile for 70 years and the Lord has to deal with them. The nation had a natural tendency, or wait a second, second is a major concern of Yahweh for his covenant people would that, that they would not be negatively impacted by the wicked practices of the pagan peoples with regard to idolatry. So that's the Lord's concern. He doesn't want them to be carried away. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, in verses 3 and 4, it continues on with this, where the Lord says, Furthermore, don't intermarry, don't give your daughters, nor take your daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me, the one whose name is to be exalted, 
to follow after these other gods. In other words, the Lord is going to create a context where Israel would not become followers of these false gods like the Canaanites who were living in the land. The Lord was seeking to protect his people from the temptations that these gods of the land presented to them. So it's this whole idea of polytheism. Israel was very much a part of that. Monotheism was new to them. And so if they were to get into the land and be exposed to these other gods, it would be natural for them to gravitate toward them. It was just the way they thought. So the nation had a natural tendency toward this polytheistic culture in which they lived. So the Lord's plan is to destroy, completely annihilate the people and their gods. So the logic of the passage is this. When you look at Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4, the logic is this. Number one, if the people remain, then number two, the Israelites will intermarry with them. And then three, the Canaanites will turn Israel's heart away from the Lord. And then four, the Israelites will serve the false gods. And then finally five, this will incur the Lord's wrath. So we must note that this is the Lord's understanding and appraisal of the natural inclination of his people, even for all humanity. Humanity naturally gravitates toward idolatry of the culture if it is allowed to flourish. As a consequence, the Lord goes to step number one in the logic of the passage and destroys the people, destroys their gods, destroys their idolatry. Even after being in the land, we must realize that this same command came to Israel. If you hear of anyone that is practicing these particular pagan religions, you go destroy them even amongst your own people. I mean, God is serious about this. So the point is that the purity of God's people is to be preserved and protected. Exposure to pagan systems can lead to embracing these systems, which can lead to the, the adoption of these systems and the subsequent rejection of, again, as we saw this morning, the name who is to be exalted. This same concept is found in the New Testament. Even though we live in the world and are to be salt and light to the world, we are clearly commanded to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, 1 John 2, 15. In reference to our new self where Christ is all in all, we are to put to death and to lay aside anything that is not consistent with setting our minds on things above or being preoccupied with that which is really true. With regard to false teaching, we are to preach the word, to be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction as we find in 2 Timothy 3 and 4. Even though some may desire to have their itching ears tickled, we are to stay the course with the inspired word of God and proclaim him. Similarities abound in the new covenant. This, the consistency throughout can be summarized, I think, basically in two points. Number one, the need for truth or light to be embraced and perpetuated without compromise. In other words, any kind of darkness. And then number two, the danger, even tendency for darkness to overtake light. Now, third, the Lord was seeking to protect the holiness of his people. The nation was to be set apart, clearly identified as the Lord's people. It says that in Deuteronomy 7, 6 very clearly. It says, for you are a holy people to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people. The point is that God is holy or other than anything, anyone in this world. And 
As a result, his people are to be holy or other than anything, anyone in this world. His followers should be clearly marked as his followers. This marking is not simply internal by loving the Lord with all heart, soul, might, and strength, but rather was to have a definite external sense to it, even beyond circumcision. The people were to be in the world, but not of the world. They were markedly distinct as the people of Yahweh. At issue here is that the people were never to give their love to or even have the appearance of acknowledging the pagan gods of the land, looking like a pagan through tolerance of false gods and religion, or worse, the practice of false gods and religion was not an option. With the Lord as their sovereign God, there was no room for embracing anything less than the other than of his person. Everything was to be defined by his person and his work. Everything was to reflect who he is. Now, fourth, this command was to confirm the Lord's oath given many generations before to Abram. Again, back to Genesis 15, 16. God is continuing his movement toward reconciliation with humanity by creating a people for himself to worship him exclusively. They were chosen by him to be his people in his land with the sole focus of worshiping him and carrying out his purposes in this world. There would be no room for paganism or idolatry. The point is that God is doing a work in this world, drawing people to himself. He accomplishes this even through the most bizarre circumstances. In this instance, he, t he makes a people from those who are not a people. He takes a people from a nation to make them a nation. He sets his affection on the ones that he chooses. All of this teaching is set forth in the Mosaic or what we would call the Old Covenant context. The Lord does not call his followers today to occupy a territory such as Hollywood and make it a sacred space by obliterating the Canaanites of that city and destroying the idolatry of that industry. However, it does point to certain implications about who the Lord is and what the work is that he's doing in this world, his view of pagan religions, his concern for his people. And so I want to draw out some implications of what we see here in Deuteronomy 7. In that covenant, what would be some implications for our covenant? Number one, the Lord is holy. R.C. Sproul states that this is defined as the Lord being other than. That's where I've been getting that definition earlier. Other than anything, anyone in this world. No theology book can contain who the Lord is. No human word is adequate to reference him. No human mind can fully grasp him. The scriptures are not complete in explaining who he is. He's nothing less than scripture, but he's far more than what we find there. There's nothing in physical reality which can compare to him. He's simply other than. As such, he is to be presented in all his glory with no reduction of his majesty. If presenting the Lord in this light is offensive to people, that's between them and the Lord. The Lord's people are not in any way to compromise the Lord's character, words, purposes, or actions in this world. Any openness to 
or toleration of pagan religions, religious practices, is an abomination that profanes the name of the Lord. Such pagan thoughts, practices, and teaching are to be crushed, obliterated. He redeems people out of this and intends that they remain out of this as a people who are distinctly His. And we are to steadfastly and unashamedly proclaim Him, which is what Colossians 1.28 calls us to. People need to see His glory and His majesty. Secondly, the Lord seeks to maintain the holiness of His people. The holiness of His people being set apart for Him or the other than of their lives matters to Him. In no way are His people to give way to anything that compromises their own holiness. In other words, it's imperative that God's people today look like the one they are following. They are to be distinct from the world around them in belief and worship and living. This is the Lord's primary concern here. If other nations were to have a problem with the persons which the Lord has recreated His followers to be in passions and purposes as outlined clearly by His revelation, then again, that's between them and the Lord. The Lord's people are to live as the people of the Lord, committed to His purposes and glory in everything, loving the nations and being radically different from them. Number three, pagan religions and pagan religious practices are not to be tolerated in any way. The posture of one who follows the Lord is to destroy these practices. They are not to be allowed to live because they bring death, because they defy the holiness of the Lord. In a contemporary context, it would mean that the Lord's people do not embrace any aspect of these religions or religious practices or encourage any of their teaching or practices as to legitimacy, but rather expose them as being contrary to the Lord. Idols, whether false worship, teaching, or practices are not to be preserved or given a new name or painted with a new face or given an alternate meaning or justified as good. It's interesting, in, in John's book uh, on false teaching, he ends it with, guard yourself from idols because anything less than truth or less than proper teaching of the Lord is idolatry because we have fabricated a new God, a different God, one who's not the glorious, majestic one of the Bible, but someone different. So guard yourself from idols. They are to be exposed and denounced. There is very little that is seeker-friendly or culturally sensitive about this. This approach does not disregard wisdom. It doesn't disregard the love component of speaking the truth in love, but it is bold and it is clear. The focus is clearly on honoring the person of Christ rather than being sensitive to a culture. Number four, the Old and New Testaments are simply two different ways of living out the clear teaching that light has nothing to do with darkness except to be shined on in a manner that overtakes or removes the darkness. In no way is darkness 
This is pagan religions, practices, teaching. In no way is darkness to have any place in light. There's to be no covenant or marriage between the two. God is light, and in Him there's no darkness at all, 1 John 1, 5 says. In the Old Testament, the light overwhelmed the darkness by destroying it. And in the New Testament, the light penetrates the darkness as we go to the nations. In both cases, darkness is to be obliterated. In neither case is any aspect of darkness to be embraced. When light shines, darkness ceases to exist. And when darkness is embraced, light is left behind. That's the teaching of the ban. Now, when we go to the book of Judges, this is an important test case for us because there are these veiled references back in Joshua that they did not completely annihilate the people. Well, what is the result of that? If the people of God allow darkness to remain, the question is, well, what happens? What happens when this darkness infiltrates God's people? So you get to the book of Judges, and what I always like to say is the people are now in the land. And you read the book of Judges. Is this what you expected? No, it's not what we expected at all. We expected God's blessing to be poured out to people. We, got, we expected God to be majestic and glorified. Instead, the people's lives are a mess. How can the chosen people of God in the chosen land for God's chosen purposes be so far from where God had called them to be? What happened? And the answer to this question is extremely important for us. If we want to maintain light, if we want to maintain distinction as being the people of God, there is a powerful lesson to be learned from this particular book. So the problem is laid out for us in Judges 1.1 through chapter 2, verse 9. And this is where those veiled references that we found back in Joshua 13, 13 and, and, and 16, 10, but they did not drive out. This is where those references are brought to light and made clear. Basically, chapter 1 says they did not completely conquer the Canaanites. In other words, they were allowed to live. And in chapter 2, they did not completely conquer the Canaanite religion. In other words, those practices remained in the land. Well, what's the result of that? That's chapter 2, verse 10 through 23. And the result is basically a presentation of a cycle that's going to repeat itself throughout the book. And this is the process. Number one, the people walk with the Lord for a while. Number two, they fall away and follow the gods of the land. Number three, the Lord in his mercy raises up. Now remember, it's in his mercy that he raises up an enemy nation to oppress them. Why is it his mercy? Because the goal is to bring them to the end of themselves and turn them back to him. So that's being merciful. Number four, the people cry out to the Lord in their pain. It's working. Number five, God raises up a deliverer to deliver his people. The people walk with the Lord for a while until they fall away and follow the gods of the land. And then we continue our cycle. But because neither the people nor the gods of the land are completely destroyed, they repeatedly tempt the God's people away from covenant faithfulness. And that cycle goes throughout the book. However, the Lord's loving kindness is indeed everlasting. 
and he relentlessly pursues his people, even in pain, he relentlessly pursues them, constantly making a way for them to come back into relationship with him until they fall away. And then God relentlessly pursues them and gets them back into relationship. So this book, to me, is a very sad book because Israel's experience in the promised land is not what it was supposed to be. Instead of experiencing God's blessing, they are continually punished for their rebellion. Consequently, they miss out on the blessings that the Lord intended. And the final chapters of the book, chapters 17 through 21, are awful. If you want to read an awful part of the Bible, read that, and you'll be going, what in the world? And it just shows how bad it really was. Now, why was this a struggle for the nation of Israel? Let me give a couple of points of the, for that. First, monotheism, one God, that was just not normal for them. At Mount Sinai, they were taught about the one true God. This was a shift in their thinking about the gods. It's always interesting, it says in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt have no other gods before me. In other words, God's not the denying the mentality that they have of other gods. He's simply saying, none of them before me. I'm the majestic one. I'm the glorious one. So that mentality was just pervasive. This was a shift in their thinking about gods to have just one God. It was not simply the number of gods that provided difficulty, but rather the whole concept of gods. They were steeped in their pagan understanding that gods influenced the different realms of nature and needed to be satisfied in order to bring blessings. See, that's their worldview. If something's going wrong, let's find the God that can fix this for us and see if he can solve our problem. So with the proliferation of gods in the land, because they were not destroyed as God commanded, Israel was easily led astray because of their worldview. Slowly, any recognition of the Lord began to pale in their everyday life. Light was not overtaking darkness. Darkness was now overtaking light. Second, Israel forgot her history. We see the evidence of some remembrance in the book of Judges, but overall, Israel quickly drifts. This is why we find the challenge in the book of Deuteronomy. Remember, don't forget. Remember, don't forget. Remember, don't forget. This is why the Lord gives us the Lord's Supper. In remembrance of me, don't you forget. You remember, remember, remember. We are people who are prone to forget. So a major purpose in writing the book of Judges is to show that Israel's spiritual condition determined its political and material situation. As long as Israel called out to and lived for Yahweh, she knew the deliverance that only God could bring. However, if she disregarded Yahweh, then she knew the judgment that would come, the oppression. Ultimately, Israel became so engrossed in the culture, which remained because she refused to be completely obedient, that she became less conversant in her own history. Pagan ideals began to dominate her thinking and actions. And when considering the entirety of Israel's history, we must realize the nation never recovered from not being a completely obedient in Joshua. And this is a sobering thought for anyone who lives in proximity of the world's religions. So what are some implications for this? Number one, the Lord's concern that the failure to destroy pagan religions and practices would result in Israel's own apostasy, remember Deuteronomy 7, it does in fact come true. 
In other words, the boundaries the Lord sets up for his people are for their own good. It seems to be a tendency of humanity to become dark when darkness comes close or is embraced or tolerated. Any hint of darkness eventually overtakes the light, slowly consuming it when the Lord is not being followed closely. The Lord seeks to radically shift one from their worldview. There is to be no playing with what God has entrusted to us. When one's hands are on the plow, there's no looking back. Repent is to turn away from. God's people leave behind that old world view to embrace what God has provided. Secondly, Humanity has a tendency toward idolatry and people become like that which they worship. Psalm 115 is so clear on that. You become like that which you worship, especially verse 8. Jeremiah 2.5 talks about the same thing. They walked after emptiness and they became empty is the idea. Idols change as worldviews change, so they vary from culture to culture, even person to person, but... What people allow to live will grow and prosper in the deepest, deepest recesses of their heart. Worldviews must be exposed. They must be turned away from. Again, if not, the tendency is to drift toward them. Number three, the more engrossed a person becomes in a pagan way of thinking and living, the more the Lord begins to pale in comparison. When toleration of worldviews become the focus, that's method, the focus will shift from the magnification of the Lord, and that's our message. Worldviews have a powerful pull on the Lord's people. And so that's why the New Testament is constantly saying, set your minds on Colossians 3, set your mind on the things above. Romans, Romans 8, set your mind on the Lord. We are to put our mind, fix our minds on these things. Number four, to be salt and light, as we see in Matthew 5, has less to do with sensitivity, sensitivity to culture. That's the method. And more to do with sensitivity to Christ. That's the message. The salt, please note, the salt can become tasteless, okay? And the light, please note, can become hidden. We proclaim Him with no hesitation, no limitation, except in our abilities to proclaim one who's other than, no denigration, nothing hidden, nothing added. That's what it means to be salt, that has taste and light that actually shines. We are to be unashamed of the gospel. God help us that we don't end up in the time of judges. Now, the last section of what I want to do here is turn to the book of 2 John. Okay, so in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord says, you are going to land, obliterate, obliterate the darkness that is there. And then we see in Judges, what happens when that's not followed? Well, 2 John looks at it now a different way. What about when darkness is coming toward you? Okay, what about when it's trying to get into you, very aggressively trying to come in to you? What is to be our response to false teaching that's seeking to penetrate the body of Christ? I recently saw a tattoo that read, 
right here, only God can judge us. Now, as a whole, this seems to be good theology. But the message behind it really says, if we could extend that out, you can't say anything about any aspect of my life because it's none of your business. I'm only responsible to God, so butt out. That's what it really means. God is indeed the only judge. But God calls us to honor Him by perpetuating and guarding the truth He has revealed to us, and He expects us to be jealous for that truth. And so when we see false teaching, we're to be jealous for His truth. So when we get into this particular book, really in 2nd and 3rd John, these, these are both books about false teaching. Now the twin towers for John, as you read through his epistles, are truth which means defending the truth about Jesus, and love, which means we're to love one another as an act of obedience to God. So when we get into the letters of 2nd and 3rd John, they're occasioned by that same truth, living the truth, or even loving the truth, we might say. These are the two dimensions of his theme. Number one, loving those who abide in the family of God, and number two, exposing or chastising those who want to dismantle the family. So there's a, there's a different, uh, there's a, a similar approach to each letter. Personal greetings, encouragement to love, and then it deals with a particular issue, and then he closes his letter. What is John doing in these two letters? He's warning against community destroyers. At issue is the question, are we to love or even better tolerate those who disagree with us concerning truth? Now, when we get into understanding the epistle of second john which i want to focus on today in verses 1 through 3 and verses 12 to 13 we get a little bit of the basics of the letter um, you've got all these things the author is identified as the elder you know and what is who is the elder you know how, how do we understand that but basically i want to understand that the letters written by john very similar to first first through third john the church has been established and leadership is in place so this elder um, would have been normative I intend to keep the concerns about the identity of the author and addressee simple because it ultimately doesn't affect the understanding of the letter. But it's, it's addressed to the elect lady. And I'm just going to say that's the congregation. Um, so we've got this godly man who loves these people, writing them a letter, and he has something to offer to them. He's very, very concerned about something. There's a fellowship of believers. Now, John has an obvious affection for the believers here. Um, he was a pastor evangelist. He was probably involved in the churches of Western Asia Minor, probably overseeing some of the pastors who were there. He loved them. So he's watching over this group. He's guarding, he's shepherding, he's encouraging them to abide and stay the course. He needs to visit them, but first he's got to quickly send this letter because something's going on. So John begins with the point that it is truth that binds. Immediately he jumps into that. It's about truth. And the gospel is powerful to save, to transform, to unify. So knowing this truth, guarding this truth, abiding in this truth is extremely important in the Christian life. It cannot be reduced to simply going to church and talking about Jesus. The church must be getting into the very heart of God and getting his heart into us. Ultimately, that is abiding. Now, it's increasingly popular to state, well, I can worship anywhere. Well, this is not true unless worship involves simply a moment of God focus. 
For John, worship is all of life, and he cannot imagine worship that does not include a central focus on Jesus, knowing, obeying the commands, actively, intentionally being in the lives of others and loving them. John says this is what binds us together. It's this fellowship that we have. And so he goes in chapter, verses 4 through 6, and he has this great rejoicing over what's going on in their life, but with a call to excel still more. Initially, he rejoices greatly. He must have had some recent contact with some of the believers, and he's excited because they're walking in the truth. But in verses 5 through 6, he encourages them to excel still more. I'm asking you to love one another. And this is a request, not a command. He wants them to have this fellowship. He wants them to be one with one another. Now, then after that, immediately in verse 7, he's got false teaching that he wants to address. And so the word for is what begins this in verse 7. For, that's an important word because they must evidence this love for one another for because, now in what follows, John identifies his main concern. We must note that similarly in 1 John, the use of deceivers and liars, as John had a similar concern in that book, the threat continues in this book to be the incarnation. This is not a marginal truth. It's absolutely central to the gospel. So the doctrine of these false teachers that are trying to come in, have violating what God had already revealed and established. So when we understand some of this false teaching that's out there, probably we can look at the seven churches of Revelation who are in this area, and there could have been a number of theological disagreements. If you just look at Revelation 2 and 3, some are claiming apostleship, the work of the Nicolaitans, the synagogue of Satan, the teaching of Balaam, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, tolerating the prophetess Jezebel, etc. These threats mattered to John. People were trying to get in and disrupt the unity, the love they had for one another, and they mattered to God as well. In each of his letters, John is seeking to maintain that which is from the beginning. He strives to stay the course, maintaining the purity of doctrine. God has spoken. And John intends to honor God by honoring this word that's been received, especially as it was received from Jesus. So he goes into this pastoral instruction in verses 8 through 11 and gives them a warning, first of all. And there are two commands in the letter. The first John gives here in verse 8, he says, watch out, watch yourselves and this has the idea of know it, get it in your heart, live it, abide in it, hold on to it. They must continue to be mindful of the truth of God's word. John longs for his flock to stay the course. So John's first concern is, is his flock. He wants to secure the standing of his flock. He talks about losing this full reward, which we could talk about forever as well. What's it actually meant by that? There's a lot of debate about it. But what John is wanting them to do ultimately is stay the course, the direction that they're going. So John's reference to going ahead here carries the idea of representing Christ in ways that are inconsistent and irreconcilable with what they've already received, that which has been crystallized, their understanding of Christ. You don't go on ahead. You don't create new doctrines. You don't add to. You stay the course. You stick with the truth that we have. Now, the implications of this are found in verses 10 and 11. Um, that's where John really gets at the heart. He drives home his point. 
if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, in other words, the body of truth historically embraced by the body of Christ, then do not receive him. This is the second command in John's second concern, which is how to deal with these false teachers. First concern, the flock. Second concern, these people that are trying to penetrate. And the point here is not focused on hospitality to non-Christians. Rather, he has in mind aiding people who are undercutting the doctrines found in God's word, taught by Christ, perpetuated by the apostles, the word that's been handed down to us. It seems that these false teachers were making the rounds spreading their new teaching with the goal of gaining a following. Context is extremely important for this book. Missionaries from the enemy are trying to make inroads into the church. The very existence of the church is at stake. Three basic, basic elements from the context of this letter must be underscored. First, the church's opponents are attacking a theological issue at the center of the church's faith, namely Christology. Second, John's warning against teacher leaders who are out to sabotage the local church. In other words, there is, this is not innocent contact between Christians and unbelievers or heretics. These are aggressive teachers trying to gain access to a congregation in order to win an audience and gain a following. Third, John's instructions to repel these teachers and to refuse them access into homes involves their survival as a people who are committed to Christ. Serious action is needed. To receive them would be to grant them and their doctrine honor and respect that's only due Christian faith and practice. It would be to embrace them and their false teaching. It would be providing an endorsement. It would be uh, giving them an entrance into the church. And John says, don't even give them a greeting. The idea of greeting with one another with a holy kiss, possibly. So what does this mean to us? First, we must be willing to expose core doctrinal beliefs that oppose, or these beliefs that oppose core doctrinal beliefs. John is not denying the need to love. He's saying we've got to be actively aggressively exposing false teaching. We've got many passages in the New Testament that point us to this. There's many ways for us to get at this truth. But secondly, what John is saying is truth must matter to God's people. John's concern is that which was heard from the beginning. There is clearly a standard and that truth must be known. We must not only abide in Christ, but in the teachings of Christ. So what are some implications for us? Let me give four real quick. Number one, the Lord intends that we guard and protect and be jealous for his truth from the inside. False teaching is not to penetrate into the body. Shepherds are to guard the flock which he purchased with his own blood. This teaching is clear. And if the teaching is coming from the inside, then we must boldly deal with it as well. Number two, it follows then that the Lord intends that we guard and protect and be jealous for his truth as the body that penetrates into the worldviews which we encounter. This means that as we represent Christ as ambassadors, we do so without compromise in any way. Truth is the matter to us. We should not feel the least bit apologetic for truth that God has given to us. We jealously guard it and we offer it to others unapologetically. Number three, Second John is built on the foundation of First John, which offers the three tests of being a true disciple of Christ. Belief that Jesus is the Son of God who came in the flesh. Two, obedience to the Lord's command. And three, love for other disciples. 
Test number one is to be guarded. It's absolutely crucial to our faith. It is the grace of God in the face of Christ that sets Christianity apart from the religions of the world. We proclaim him that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Christ needs to be known. We are not passing on a religion. We are passing on Christ who saves by his atoning sacrificial blood through grace to be received by faith. Fourth, John writes to the church. We are the called out ones. We are to be set apart. We are to strive to be salt that is tasty and light that is shining. We are not insiders. Coming to Christ has always been a calling out to come and follow with one's whole heart. And our ministries should reflect this. So what is to be our attitude when we consider this kind of teaching in God's Word? God's Word is clear. Light is to overtake darkness. And as we boldly take the gospel to a world that needs to hear, we let our light shine brightly to the glory of the one who called us out of darkness into light. Amen. Thank you.